For the past few weeks, we've celebrated together during the seasons of Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. These seasons of the church are bound together, telling one continuous story. And that story is something like this. In Advent, we anticipate the arrival of the Messiah, trusting that God keeps His word to us, that He hasn't forgotten us. And Advent ends with the beginning of the next season, the season of Christmas. In the season of Christmas, we find that the hope of Advent is realized. The Messiah has arrived. God had kept His promise. He was truly with us. And Christmas ends with the beginning of the next season, a lesser-known season, the season of Epiphany. During Epiphany, we celebrate that Gentile magi from the East come and worship the Lord. Epiphany is the season where we celebrate that Israel's Messiah wasn't just the king of Israel. Israel's Messiah was the king of the whole world, Jew and Gentile alike. These first three seasons, Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany, that comprise the first major section of the church year. These three seasons serve as the foundation upon which the gospel story itself is built. But for as pivotal as those seasons are, they're not the whole story. The first part of the story, Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany, they center on that the Messiah came. But the second part of the story, the seasons of Lent, Easter, and Pentecost, they center on who the Messiah is. And this Sunday marks the exact place where the first part of the story and the second touch. Today is a pivot point, a hinge in the church year where we shift out of one season and into another, where we shift out of the first part of the story and into the second. Look with me in our gospel text, Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9, and let's see where that shift occurs. So our text Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9, begins with these words. After six days had passed. Okay, six days after what passed? I mean, we need to know what's happening so we can understand what's going on. So let's cheat just a little bit. Let's go back and see if we can find just a little context. Look with me in the previous chapter, Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. It says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, this is Peter's big moment, right? By correctly identifying the Messiah, Peter just hit the proverbial nail right on the head. And look at how Jesus responds to him. Verse 17, And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Wow. I mean, can you imagine hearing something like that from the Lord? Peter must have felt like a million bucks. But if you know the story, then you know that feeling of accomplishment Peter must have felt didn't last long. Immediately after that uplifting conversation, this happens. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Peter, being the sensible one, he pulls Jesus off to the side and he tells Jesus he's got this whole Messiah thing messed up. Messiahs don't die an 
unjust and shameful death, Jesus, the Messiah establishes justice. The Messiah isn't rejected by the chief priests and elders, Jesus. The Messiah restores the temple because the temple belongs to the Messiah. So what are you talking about all of this stuff? Dying. That's not what Messiahs do. Now, when Jesus responds to Peter's critique, he doesn't pull any punches. He responds to Peter's pulling him off to the side by saying what? Get behind me, Satan. In the span of what could have been five minutes, Peter went from blessed are you, Simon Barjona, to get behind me, Satan. And I'm sure Peter was, was reeling at this point, trying to figure out where it all went wrong. He had done so good and then so bad back to back. You see, Peter and the other disciples were right about Jesus being the Messiah. They had that figured out. But for as right as they were about him being the Messiah, they were wrong about what being the Messiah meant. To the disciples, the Messiah was supposed to be the one who would restore the temple and establish justice. The Messiah was supposed to hurl the enemies of God out of the land. And now, Jesus was telling them that yes, he was the Messiah, but he would be delivered up to the leaders of the temple and unjustly killed by the enemies of God. This was the exact opposite of everything the disciples looked for in the Messiah. And as the story continues in Matthew 16, verse 24, things just got worse for the disciples. Jesus told them this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his own life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The disciples had placed all of their hopes in Jesus, all of their hopes in him being the Messiah, but now they weren't sure what that meant apart from the fact that he was going to die, and apparently so were they. So with his disciples hurting, confused, probably more than just a little afraid, what does Jesus do? How does he respond to them? Well, look now in our gospel text, and let's see. Matthew 17, starting in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Jesus takes these hurting, worried, confused men with all of their questions, with their messianic theology in absolute ruins, who can't fathom a Messiah who dies, who are being asked to follow this dying Messiah so that they can die as well on a cross. And what does he do with them? He has them follow him up a mountain, and Jesus begins to peel back layer after layer, showing his disciples a reality that is usually hidden from view. And as these confused and worried disciples look on, something without parallel happens. Before their very eyes, Jesus is transfigured. In extraordinary fashion, Jesus shows himself in all of his radiant glory, in all of his power and authority, in all of his capabilities and legitimacy. He shows himself to these three disciples. The same disciples who just moments ago were trying to figure out how Jesus could be the Messiah, now see him as he truly is. They saw Jesus, the Messiah, blazing in front of them, shining with an unmistakable holy light. And then as if all of that weren't convincing enough, a voice booms from heaven above them. 
This is my son. Listen to him. The father is present on that mountain, attesting that Jesus was there on his authority, that Jesus was the son of the living God, sent from heaven as God's Messiah. And there was more. Elijah and Moses are present on the mountain as well. Centuries upon centuries of waiting for this Messiah, going back through the prophets, back to Moses and Elijah themselves, all of them looking forward to the coming Messiah. And now Moses and Elijah are standing with him testifying by their very presence that Jesus was the culmination of everything God had promised. It was unmistakable. It was absolutely irrefutable to the disciples that Jesus was the Messiah. And guys, listen, I've read at least 10 different takes on the transfiguration and all of them are are brilliant and all of them are helpful in some way. But every one of them is struggling to understand everything that's happening in these verses. The transfiguration of Jesus is such a complex and amazing event that it takes a lot of different views to help you even see one part of the picture, let alone the whole thing. So this morning, I can't distill all of those different meanings down for you. But what I can say to you about the transfiguration, what I want you to remember about this part of the story is this. Jesus is preparing. He's preparing himself and his followers for their journey to the cross. And part of that preparation is on this mountain where we have an absolute confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah. And though he was going to die, that death would not be his end nor the end of anyone who followed him. And so the transfiguration of Jesus seems to be where the first part of the story Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany connect with the second, Lent, Easter, and Pentecost. The first part of the story celebrates a God who descends from heaven to earth and dwells among us. But the second part of the story celebrates a God who descends from earth into death so that we might dwell with him. And that shift in the story, that shift from the mystery of his coming to the mystery of his sacrifice pivots on this very day. And so the church begins to shift our focus because on the day of his transfiguration, Jesus shifted his. The disciples, as they beheld the glory of the transfigured Jesus, their their doubts about his power melted away. Their concerns over what authority he might hold vanished. Jesus was the Messiah. And now the Messiah walked down the mountain with them. And I want you to listen very closely how the Gospel of Mark records what happens next. Mark chapter 9, verse 9 and 10 record it this way. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them, tell no one what you've seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now listen to this. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. (laughs) Guys, what are the disciples still not getting? Jesus was going to die. They still didn't get it. They still couldn't wrap their minds around a Messiah who would die. They could not fit the words of Jesus into their picture of the Messiah. Now let's ask an important question. Were the disciples doing this because they were just being hard-headed? Were they doing it on purpose? Did they truly understand what Jesus was saying and just pretend to not get it? Or did they really just not get it? I ask those questions because something like this kind of happened to me once. 
When I was about seven years old, my favorite TV show was The A-Team. Every single day after school, me and the guys made a point to watch it. We loved everything about it, the gunfights, the fistfights. Most of all, we loved B.A. Baracus. Now, you might know him as Mr. T, but back then, we just called him B.A. And buddy, let me tell you, you didn't mess with B.A., and if you did, it happened one time. My devotion to B.A. Baracus was so complete, I didn't even think of him as a character on TV. He was as real as anyone in this room is. And in the mind of a seven-year-old Bubba, B.A. Baracus could not be beaten. He was an undefeatable champion. So you can imagine my pain the very first time I watched Rocky III. <clears throat> it's funny now. <laughs> when I watched that movie, I saw B.A. Baracus lose. He lost the fight. I had never even considered a world where B.A. Baracus could lose anything. He can't lose. He's B.A. Baracus. I was devastated. I was confused. And when the movie ended, I'm not lying, I remember my mother picked up my sobbing body. And as she was taking me to the bed, I could hear my grandmother, my mama, was yelling at my uncle because my Uncle Bill rented this movie on purpose because he knew I loved B.A. Baracus. So uncle's out there. Chill out. You see, I was, I was so blinded by my picture of who B.A. Baracus was, I never even considered a possibility of him losing. And to make matters worse, I didn't even see any of his actions in the movie as bad. And for those who haven't seen Rocky III, Mr. T's clearly the bad guy. But I wasn't just making excuses for him. I wasn't trying to figure out a way for his actions to be good. I just didn't see them. I couldn't see him as bad. My picture of B.A. Baracus would not accommodate someone who did bad stuff. So I just didn't see anything he did as wrong. I think the disciples might be like this. I think the disciples are trying to get it, but their picture of the Messiah just can't accommodate a picture of a Messiah that dies. So when Jesus is talking about dying, they just don't hear it. They just don't get it. But what the disciples don't understand is that there is an imminent problem on the horizon. As Jesus comes down this mountain, we are told that he sets his face to Jerusalem. And Jesus knew there was a fight waiting for him there. At the end of that fight lay a cross and his death, and all of that would happen even if the disciples couldn't understand how. After the transfiguration, Jesus shifts his focus to the cross, but from the best that we can tell, the disciples don't. They don't shift their focus with Jesus. Instead, the disciples are arguing, de debating among themselves all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. After the crucifixion, they despaired, they were afraid, still unable to take in the fact that Jesus was dead. Even after his resurrection, even though they believed it was truly him, that he was alive, they're still confused. They still don't see. They're still lacking the vision and focus of Jesus. And it seems to me, they never quite shift their focus all the way until Pentecost, when Jesus, having ascended to heaven and being seated at the right hand of the Father, sends from heaven the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit fills the disciples and they have the eyes of Jesus so they can finally see. They have the ears of Jesus and they can finally hear. They have the heart of Jesus so they can finally love. 
and they love with the ferocity that makes the gates of hell shake. This is where the disciples are heading. This is where the story is going to a day when these doubting, confused disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, Pentecost. And in that filling, receiving the life of the resurrected Jesus, the same resurrected Jesus who rose on the third day, Easter. The same Jesus who suffered death on the cross, Good Friday. The same Messiah who takes his disciples up a mountain and prepares them for all that was to come, the transfiguration. And this is where we find ourselves today, on the eve of our own Lenten journey, on the eve of a season of preparation, a season where the Messiah wants you and I to be made ready, a season where you and I listen closely to Jesus, asking him if, if we see what he sees, asking him if we hear what he hears, asking him to search our hearts so that we might love as he loves My friend, Jesus wants to show you something. Jesus wants to show you in all of his resplendent glory who he is. And then he wants to tell you that he wants you. He wants you to know him and to be known by him. He wants to call you up a mountain and show you who he is because he loves you. And if there's something that's keeping you from him out of love for you, he will take you to the side and rebuke you as well. Out of a fierce and jealous love for you, he wants to make you his. And so our invitation today to follow Jesus up the Mount of Transfiguration and behold his glory. And then to follow Jesus into the Linton Valley, to make space in our lives, to make room in our day so that we can hear and see the one who was transfigured and by doing so have a sure hope that he will transfigure us as well. If you haven't encountered this risen Jesus, if your heart and mind have not been transformed, then I have good news for you. There is a mountain and there is a Lord upon it and he's waiting for you. He's calling for you, wanting you to follow him so that you can be like him. And you don't have to go up the mountain alone. The church is here. We are here with you and for you. The church, the bride of Jesus, follows Jesus together. And as we all follow, as we are all transformed, we look forward to the day when the journey will be at an end. And on that day, on our life's last moment, the end of our own Lenten journey, we will behold the transfigured Jesus face to face. And in his light, in his life, our own transformations, our own transfigurations will be complete as well. Amen.